Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Although the entire state is currently seeing uncontrolled spread of COVID-19, local communities are approaching mitigation in wildly different ways. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Dr. Vince Hunsberger of Bonner General Health in Sandpoint talks about how his hospital is affected by COVID-19 as other regional facilities are filling up. Maylee Marcellus of Magic Valley's South Central Public Health District discusses COVID-19 investigations and where the majority of new outbreaks are coming from right now. Finally, Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press discusses new property tax proposals and legislative leadership races. But first, six of Idaho's seven public health districts met this week, as did a number of city councils. After two weeks of record-breaking COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations and deaths. The series of meetings and votes was representative of the patchwork local control approach that has defined Idaho's efforts to control the COVID-19 outbreak. In southwestern Idaho, board members heard presentations that included conspiracy theories about 5G and misinformation about mask use. Central District Health's board put into place a district-wide public health advisory that strongly recommends mask use, the closure of extracurricular activities, and other actions. The advisory isn't a mandate. Eastern Idaho implemented a mask mandate on Custer County. Magic Valley's South Central Health District voted down a mandate, leaving its policy unchanged. The Panhandle Health District put into place a district-wide mask mandate, the first of its kind in the state. The mandate affects Boundary, Bonner, Kootenai, Shoshone, and Benoit counties. The city councils of Lewiston and Pocatello approved citywide mask mandates, while the mayor of Boise announced she would start enforcing the existing mandates with potential citations or even arrests. We have much more on our blog. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho reports. Large regional hospitals have warned for a couple of weeks now that they are nearing crisis standards of care, meaning they'll have to make difficult decisions about which patients will receive life-saving emergency treatments. For St. Luke's, that could come as soon as December. That has implications on smaller medical facilities. Dr. Vince Hunsberger of Bonner General Health and Hospital in Sandpoint joined me Friday to discuss the impacts on his hospital and whether the newly imposed mask mandate will help. Thanks so much for joining us. Can you give us an overview of what your hospital is facing right now? So what our hospitals uh, deal with now is similar to what is happening in the rest of the country. We're seeing upticks in, in community spread and our hospital uh, is at 86% capacity at this point and we're struggling uh, to have our non-COVID and COVID patients if they're sicker to be transferred out into regional hospitals due to the uh, capacity issues uh, in the region and really nationally. You say 86% capacity, what are you at normally? So Bonner General would run, so we're a smaller critical access facility, so we have a pretty wide range. We're not a big uh, receiving facility that you'd see at Cooney Health or Sacred Heart or uh, Multicare or Spokane Valley. 
So our capacities can run pretty broadly because we can have slow uh, weeks uh, where we could be down to maybe 10 to 12 patients in the hospital and we max out at uh, 25 to 28 and then we could see where uh, we would reach that capacity uh, in COVID or non-COVID uh, times. So earlier this week, the Bonner County Daily Bee reported that the that Bonner General has moved to contingency mode. What does that mean, um, and and what does that mean for the care provided to the patients? So we've had contingency mode since we started. So we've tried to follow CDC guidelines, and uh, we have our own phases that we try to implement through our facility. So contingency plan just means we're ready for the next thing. So we're always prepared. We're always thinking of. You know, what if we have full capacity? What if we can't transfer patients? What do we do with our intubated patients? What do we do with our non-COVID patients? So contingency is really just us knowing what our next steps are and what we have available. Because we as the hospital have to decide, you know, when can elective surgeries be postponed? You know, when can the colonoscopy be postponed? You know, when do we need to keep our, um, uh, our staff and our community safe where we need to slow down things that we uh, no can be elective. Uh, we have to always be prepared for the emergent. And right now, obviously, we have to be ready for uh, sick COVID patients. And COVID patients take up a lot of staff's uh, time and energy. They're, you know, they're um, patients that you have to put them in isolation. We have to full we'll PPE. We have to do so many more things with that, that it's, it's something we have to plan. And so that's really all the contingency is, is that we have the full capacity to care for any at this point in time, and we're ready for the next steps. Uh, and, and really, you know, from our standpoint, we want everybody in the community and the country and the world to do their part to hopefully slow this virus down and, and stamp it out. You know, I've sat through a number of Board of Health meetings lately where I'm hearing from smaller hospitals like yours that the issue isn't necessarily your capacity, but the capacity at larger regional hospitals, meaning that you can't transfer patients if they need that next step of care. So as you're eyeing what's going on in Spokane and Kootenai, are, are you prepared to have to transfer those patients elsewhere if necessary? Yes, so we've we've been in uh, you know where we've been transferred into Western Montana, Missoula, or Kalispell. So we continue to try to you know get the patient where they need um, to be uh, cared for, just because we know in the different areas where you know that capacity is and what specialists they have that we don't have. So yeah, we're you know we're obviously used to transferring to Cooney Health in Spokane out of Sandpoint, but if we need to, we'll look elsewhere. And that's just the, again, it goes back to the big picture of what's happening in our country and our region is that we really have to slow down the virus to slow down the capacity so that we can care for non-COVID patients along with COVID patients. So it really starts outside the doors of the hospital. It's all about the community uh, wearing masks, physically distancing, doing our part uh, to, you know, do takeout instead of dining in, you know, Zoom meetings for any in-gathering things. So it's, it's those things that are important. And then from a trans standpoint, you know, again, it does slow it down a little bit. We do look for beds in, in other areas. This isn't unique to us. This is happening throughout the country. If you want to look through the Midwest and other places, it's it's occurring and, and it's it's a struggle for us to transfer patients out due to capacity regionally and, and nationally. Recently, Washington Governor Jay Inslee has been critical of Idaho's response to the pandemic, saying that um, there are hospitals in Washington who are having to take on more Idaho patients than usual, uh, especially COVID patients who has, have to be transferred out. Um, and, and he has been critical of Governor Brad Little's response and the whole state's response to the pandemic. Is that a fair portrayal of the situation? 
I think we have to look again nationally. This isn't something that's isolated to a region, whether it's Washington or Idaho. It's the world and it's, and it's our country. So we all have to do our part. So, uh, you know, governors and, and, and people can put down guidance and they can move us from phase four to phase two to phase one. But in the end, it's got to come down to the individuals, us as the community that, you know, believes in it. It's real. I mean, we have intubated patients, you know, over a quarter million people have died from COVID, so we have to wear masks, we have to physically distance, we have to wash hands, we have to reduce uh, gathering in large gatherings. And even, you know, as Thanksgiving comes up, we have to think about our neighbors and our loved ones and our friends and our, our especially our elderly that have been most affected by this disease. And we have to do our best to, to stay home, to not travel, to not have 20, 30 family members. You know, I have a large family, I'm one of five, and, and we're used to having 20, 25 people at our gatherings, and we're going to stay home this year, and we're going to join ourselves, and we're going to set our Thanksgiving date for hopefully March 15th when the vaccine's out, and, and uh, hopefully we're, we're in a much better place than we are today. On Thursday, on Thursday Panhandle's uh, Board of Health implemented a district-wide mask mandate that, of course, covers your community. Is that enough to stop the spread, and is it going to help in time? It will help. Uh, is it enough? There's the different things we have to do that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and the, and the rest of our top epidemiologists and scientists and, and physicians have said. It's, it's physically distancing, trying to stay away, don't gather in large gatherings. Wearing your mask is part of it. You know, as we see the vaccinations come out, that's super exciting. It's going to take some time to distribute and get them out with the different um, variations of the vaccines and how cold you have to get it, but it'll be coming. But just like we've dealt with for the last uh, 10 to 11 months, we all have to do our part. Uh, so we all want to to just do what we need to do as as people in our community to, to help each other. Uh, and so I think it's super important that we do those basic um, uh, health guidelines that have uh, you know, shown to be beneficial. Uh, so yeah, I think wearing masks is, is super important. I wear mine, you know, anytime I come inside, the hospital has a you know, full mask wearing capacity. And then the other things, the physical distancing and uh, washing our hands and you know, trying to keep gatherings uh, small. You know, you keep saying that it's up to members of the community, but there are still members of your community who are skeptical of the severity of the situation or even the existence of the pandemic. What would you say to them? And I see them too. I mean, we all we all meet people that that think it's real. It happens. You know, a quarter of a million people have died. We have eighty or seventy-five, eighty thousand people hospitalized. Uh, we've had over one hundred eighty thousand cases a day. Uh, that's a smaller percentage. Most people do believe it's real. I mean, there's going to be those naysayers with whatever it is in, in life. Um, so I think it's one of those things we have to continue to say what we're saying. We have to say it is real. I've cared for many patients with COVID. I've seen uh, patients that I've sent home on hospice that have COVID and, and uh, I know they don't have much time to live and I wanted them to be comfortable to end the life. I've seen their families cry and and uh, you know, I've shed my tears for loved ones that are, are sick and dying from this. So it's real. You just keep saying that it's real, and and, and you can't always change. Um, someone that's very you know dug their heels in to, to believe it's not real. That's that's difficult. Uh, but again, the vast majority of people believe it's real. Now, how do we uh, deal with it? And again, we have those people that don't want to wear. Uh, masks that I just try to tell them like it's helping you it's helping us uh, it's my choice to wear a mask uh, I'm gonna wear it I think it, it, it's gonna help and to educate our our public about how to properly wear masks and I think a, a great thing I've seen recently just coming in here this morning is 
schools have done a wonderful job of, of not spreading. And these are young kids that typically spread viruses very easily. And, and they have shown because they're using proper uh, distancing, they're using uh, barriers between each other, they're wearing masks. Schools in our country have done an amazing job in our community, in our state, to not be spreaders when done appropriately. And so I think that's something we can look at and say, there's, there's a, a phase of our, our daily lives for our, our children and, and our college kids and, and people that are in, in school of like what they have done to reduce the spread of COVID. And I think you can look at that where these people are coming together, but they're wearing masks. They're, they're, they're physically distancing. There's barriers between them. So our other areas of mass congregation can really learn from schools and say like, well, what did they do? All right. Well, Dr. Hunsberg, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Part of controlling the COVID-19 spread is understanding where outbreaks happen in the first place. On Friday, Maley Marcellus of South Central Public Health District in Twin Falls joined me to explain what investigators and contact tracers do. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you walk us through the process of contact tracing? Yeah, so contact tracing is a process that um, our contact tracers are using to get a hold of people that have been exposed to the virus. Um, I am a COVID investigator, so I do the initial phone call to collect the contacts. So I am not contacting uh, everybody who has been exposed to the virus, um, but it is definitely a very important tool for us to try and try and slow the spread in our community. You know, we've heard from other health districts that the at this point, the virus is so prevalent that data entry is becoming a problem and they can't keep up with contact tracing. Is that an issue for Public Health District 5? Um, as of right now, we are not struggling with contact tracing. Uh, we are struggling with the number of cases coming in. Um, that requires a lot of data entry um, on the front side of things just to make sure that our numbers are getting in and that they're accurate. Um, but the, I think the thing that is most difficult is that that data entry has to be done by someone. Uh, so our investigators who does the initial phone calls to collect those contacts are being pulled away from that, that duty to, to, to do data entry, which is unfortunate because we definitely want to contact as many people as we can, but um, definitely prioritize getting the numbers out to people so that they can be making decisions for themselves. As you contact people and talk to them, what sort of reactions do you tend to get? Uh, I think overall, most people are very receptive to what we have to say. They're very grateful that we take the time out of our day to um, contact each and every person to answer all their questions and to give them as much guidance as we possibly can pertaining to their specific situation. Um, so I think overall it is, it is positive, um, but there definitely are those those ones that, that aren't as positive as we hope, but it is definitely an emotionally charged uh, situation. So um, kind of expected that we don't always get the result that we're hoping for. You know, at this point with exponential spread of the virus so prevalent in the community, not just in Magic Valley, but everywhere in the state, is contact tracing and investigation still useful? Yes, uh, we definitely think that it is still useful. It is our best tool that we have at Public Health um, to reach out to every every person who has COVID to answer those questions, to collect those contacts and remind them that they should be doing their own contact tracing um, just to help slow the spread and prevent people from going out when they're when they're contagious, even though they may not necessarily be sick. 
when you're doing these interviews, where are you finding the most uh, common places that people are catching the virus? I think the most common places are um, small gatherings. Uh, so family dinners, birthday parties, um, kind of things of that nature where you're maybe not as guarded as, as you would be if you're out in the community because you're with family and friends. Um, but that's been, I think, the, the biggest place that we've been hearing. Yeah, and of course, that brings to mind the family gatherings that we're going to be seeing with the holidays coming up and Thanksgiving next week. Do you, in your view, are people receptive to the idea that uh, maybe they should be limiting Thanksgiving dinners and holiday gatherings to people who are already in their bubble? Uh, that's a really great question, and I am not sure on that. Um, I think a lot of people really want to have that family time, which is understandable. We all do. Uh, but it's very important to really be taking those precautions even now uh, just to prevent the spread of the virus and to protect our loved ones. You know, on Thursday, your Board of Health declined to pass a mask mandate after a number of members of the community testified um, against the idea of this public health order and the mandate. And a lot of people seem to really doubt not just the severity of the situation, but in some cases, the existence of the pandemic itself. What would you say to your fellow community members who have that uh, erroneous point of view? Uh, I, I think first I would say that I'm really grateful that they don't know anybody who has been negatively afflicted by the virus. Uh, but I would like to remind people that that there are definitely members in our community and way too many of them that are having negative side effects uh, long term and um, quite a few people are, are still dying more than what we would want. So there are people's loved ones who are being negative, negatively afflicted by this. And um, just, to, just to keep that in mind, but I am very grateful that, that they haven't had to experience that on a personal level. All right, Maylee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. While the pandemic rages on, the Idaho legislature continues to gear up for the 2021 legislative session. Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press joined me to talk about property tax proposals lawmakers will likely hear, plus upcoming leadership races. Betsy, thanks so much for joining us. You spent your week covering the property tax interim committee. Can you tell us what the group decided on? Well, I, I can say that it felt like a week, but it was only one day. <laughs> and this was the final meeting of the Property Tax and Revenue Expenditures Interim Committee. And so this is when, after all those long meetings that they held before and all the different proposals they discussed, they were going to make their decisions as far as their recommendations to the legislature. And this time they only had three proposed pieces of legislation on their agenda. And it did not reflect all the different, many different things they had discussed over the course of the last six months, um, with some exceptions. And so the three proposals that did get approval, not with unanimous votes, but with pretty strong support from the, the committee, in some cases, party line support, the one was to actually start a new state program that would cost $1.7 million the first year and $1.3 million a year in subsequent years to collect and standardize all local government budget and expenditure data and post those figures publicly through the state controller's transparent Idaho website. And this is a huge project because it involves something, and it's, it's not just cities and counties. I mean, it involves something like 15 
hundred different taxing districts. And where this arose from is that the legislators have been really frustrated because they've tried to, to examine local government spending to see how that relates to our property tax increases. And they found it's really hard to compare them. They're all handled differently. So this would require formulating uniform accounting standards, collecting all that data, constantly posting it, and it had pretty strong support on the committee. So that was the first piece. Um, secondly, they approved a cap for local government budgets from one year to the next. And we already have a cap of 3% plus growth, uh, plus new construction and annexation for the property tax portion of local government budgets. This would ratchet that down much further, particularly for those counties that are seeing a lot of growth by setting a, a solid cap of 4% unless two thirds of voters in the jurisdiction approved going above that, and that includes new construction. So that means fast growing counties couldn't collect more money because they have new construction going on. Um, this is a very controversial proposal. There are also other aspects to it um, involving tying the budget caps to the consumer price index so that some uh, fast growing areas might be limited to even less than 4%. Um, and it was formulated by Senator Jim Rice from Caldwell. Uh, this um, one a party line approval from the committee, but similar proposals went nowhere in recent years in the legislature, and it's not clear if this is any kind of an answer. And then the third proposal was a new one from Senator Jim Guthrie from McCann. And this was to, to place limits on the ability of local governments to build up reserve funds or rainy day funds. They would be limited to three months worth of operating funds for unassigned reserves and just one month's worth for rainy day funds. Now the problem with this is that the legislators have this theory that there must be big pots of money just sitting out there. Local governments are just wasting it um, and they wanna tap into everything so that property taxes can be cut. But what local governments have come in and testified to the committee is that when there are unassigned funds, typically that's the money for the new fire station that they're saving up so they don't have to go to a bond and get charged interest and they can do it at a cheaper cost to the taxpayers. Um, this bill says, so what, you can't do that anymore. You have to bond if you want to build anything. And the really, um, obvious question about this is why would that kind of restriction be put on local governments when the state legislature itself is doing the exact opposite right now they are running up a budget a projected budget surplus for this year of far more than 500 million dollars they are um they have a hundred million dollars sitting in a tax relief fund that's been just been collecting there they've done nothing with it we have state rainy day funds and budget reserves of another $500 million. This is basically a proposal of do as we say, not as we do. Um, and once again, yeah, I really doubt it's going anywhere. You know, I, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about the 2008 economic downturn and what an absolute lifesaver the state rainy day funds were for Idaho. Um, it, did that come up at all in discussion as they were talking about limiting the county's ability to do the same thing? It did not come up this week. In fact, 
the discussion was noticeably thin <laughs> on this proposal, which was newly unveiled, near as I can tell, at this meeting. Um, all the public testimony and the input they took from local governments earlier was on different proposals, things like adjustments to the homeowner's exemption, the circuit breaker, um, new ways to approach impact fees, perhaps so that for schools or in other ways to um, have growth pay for growth. This was not one of the things they got input on. This is just something that near as I can tell, popped up at the end as a new idea and they endorsed it. Um, and I should say that there were some pretty testy exchanges at this meeting. Um, Senator Grant Burgoyne, when the time came to vote on the first proposal about the data collection program said he was inclined to vote, for it, but he was wondering if he was being played for a chump because where were all the other proposals that this committee has been studying? And it was notable that at the end they took a vote to ask to extend their work for another year. And Senator Burgoyne very loudly voted no <laughs> against that. Um, that has been the complaint. We've had multiple interim committees over the years looking at property taxes in Idaho, and they haven't really come up with much. And this committee was really gonna dive into it and do more than the committee the previous year did. But so far, all they have come up with is proposals to limit or oversee local government spending um, and Senator Burgoyne argued that those are not proposals for property tax relief. Um, Senator Jim Rice from Caldwell was very much angered by that suggestion and said, these are proposals for property tax relief. And there are great differences of opinion. You know, it's notable, too, that all of these discussions happened two weeks before the legislature's organizational session um, at which lawmakers will vote for leadership. Um, and not sure whether or not this will play into that, but leadership is important because it they have a pretty big role in deciding not just who the committee chairmen are, it's, it's entirely up to them, but also what proposals uh, end up in front of the body as a whole. And we're already hearing about some high profile and potentially contentious legislative leadership races in both the House and the Senate. That's right. Uh, there have been news stories all around the state this week about leadership races that are emerging. In fact, Melissa, it was you who broke the news that Representative Judy Boyle from Midvale is going to challenge House Majority Leader Mike Moyle. Um, Nate Brown over in Idaho Falls wrote about uh, the the prospect of a challenge to House Speaker Scott Bedke, um, and we from just Representative had, Wendy Horman, right? Yes, from Representative Wendy Horman, the Vice Chair of the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, and just today, um, Bill Spence up in Lewiston wrote about Senator Dan Johnson from up there um, running for. Uh, Senate President Pro Tem, we already know that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Winder is planning to run for that. So we have yet another contested race there. And that's an open seat because longtime Senate President Pro Tem Brent Hill is retiring. And these, these leadership positions are extremely important in part determining what happens within their body, but also what happens between the two. Um, some of those very proposals we were talking about on property tax relief this last session um, failed because the House and Senate were going in completely different directions. And it's unclear at this point whether that's even likely to change. Well, and House Majority Leader Mike Moyle, who has been in that position since I believe 2006, has been so instrumental in what House 
uh, in what tax proposals end up in the House Taxation Committees and in front of the House, um, and what goes over to the Senate. And that was something that Representative Boyle brought up when I talked to her about her reasons, not taxation specifically, but those relationships with the Senate and how the House works with the body across the rotunda. So I'm very curious how that might affect the property tax proposals if that challenge from Representative Boyle is successful. Absolutely. And 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 Representative Moyle has been a very influential me uh, member of the Revenue Tax Committee, perhaps more so than its longtime chairman, Representative Gary Collins, who has now retired. So now who's going to be the Revenue Tax Chairman? That also is the kind of thing that will be determined at the organizational session. So many moving pieces. We will be sure to cover those throughout the week. Betsy Russell, thank you so much for your time. Idaho Reports is off for Thanksgiving week, but we'll continue to have updates on COVID-19 on air and social media. Thanks for watching and have a safe holiday. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.